Good morning. You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Dr. Jim Ireland is a community physician, but also happens to wear the hat as the state's rescue and firefighters medical director for the airports. We've been checking in with him on a regular basis during these COVID times. We chatted earlier this week about how they recently discovered a traveler who was sick with COVID-19. It was a CDC program that originally screened international flights out of Asia and the Pacific for avian flu, but was recently expanded to screen for COVID-19. Now, the state, under the governor's leadership, has done a very good job of really suppressing the COVID-19 virus. And it's, I wouldn't say it's completely eliminated from Hawaii, but we're very close. I mean, today we had no cases, and over the last week everybody's seen the numbers. It's been, it's been pretty remarkable, and they're still doing a lot of tests, six to 800 tests a day, I think, the last time I looked. So testing is, is going reasonably well, and we're not getting new cases So at some point, in theory, we could become like New Zealand, where there's just no cases here. But then we know the threat, again, would be for people coming in. So that's kind of the setup for this. So the governor uh, wanted screening done for people coming into the airport. And so what we're doing now with our firefighters at the airports, in partnership with the National Guard, is we are checking people coming off planes much more robust than what was done previously for the avian influenza, which was international travelers, and it was just done if people were identified as being sick. There were no temperature checks. But now we have all these folks coming in, getting their temperatures checked, and what happened Saturday is is there was a person who had a fever. And you caught that? Yeah. The firefighter took the temperature. It was 101. That's above the threshold. And then we identify that person, and we send them to what we call secondary screening, the airport paramedic came to them, took the temperature again, reconfirmed that it was a fever, and then we went through the kind of the standard questioning, how are you feeling, do you have any shortness of breath, do you have any cough, Um, have you been in contact with anybody with COVID-19, but we also know that fevers can come from a lot of other things besides COVID-19, they can come from pneumonia, uh, influenza, the flu, they can come from urinary tract infections, infections anywhere in the body. Uh, and so it's not just a slam dunk that you have COVID just because you have a fever, but it was on the, on the differential diagnosis. Previously, in the last few weeks, since we've been taking temperatures, when we do have somebody at the airport with a fever, we offer them medical care at an emergency room. Because if you're coughing and you feel terrible, you probably should get evaluated because, again, it could be COVID, but it could be a lot of other things too. And generally, when people elect to go to the emergency room, either by car or by ambulance, the emergency room physician evaluates the patient and then can do a COVID swab there at the hospital. And then we get our answer. Um, But this particular person didn't feel unwell. He didn't have a cough. He didn't have shortness of breath. He didn't feel terrible. And so he didn't want to go to the emergency room. And to be honest, that's reasonable if you don't feel sick. So under our protocol, the paramedic at the airport called the Department of Health officer on call and talked to them about the situation and that was decided that they would do the swabbing right at the airport. And we've trained the folks to do that there, and that's what they did. They did a COVID-19 swab, and the patient was allowed to go home. The patient, anybody coming into the state, is under a 14-day quarantine. So the patient was going home under quarantine. However, it was important to get the information because that patient did live with household members, and there was risk of transmission. So getting that swab was key based on the fever, because uh, it came back positive. And was he released into the home already at the time, or did, did he know before he went home that he had tested positive? No, he did not know, because he came in, I think it was like a Saturday night. And so, I don't remember off the top of my head, but we got the result either Sunday or Monday morning, I forget. But no, he was home and with his family when the test came back. And so the health department, it's, this is their program, and they have their own procedures where they do the follow-up and the contact tracing and engage the person with, you know, the proper warnings and the follow-up and that sort of thing. Right, but in that case, then, you would like to believe that you helped prevent the spread because you were able to identify this person quickly. We totally did, yes, absolutely. And, again, you're under the mandatory 14-day quarantine, but, you know, my fear is always, okay, he was home, his family was home, but if he then transmitted to his family and then maybe... I don't know who his family or I don't know anything about this person or his family, but, you know, some family members still work or they're in critical jobs right. or they, they have, you know, work at a grocery store or a gas station or in health care where the, the family members go to work. So my fear would be then that he 
cross-contaminated or infected a family member or friend who was at the house, and then they went somewhere where there's potential for transmission. Although we're doing social distancing and gloves and, and masks and doing everything we can as a, as a society to t- try to limit the transmission, it's always better, in my opinion, to know when there's a case so you can kind of give those kind of stronger warnings and make sure really people are adhering to, um, to home quarantine. Okay, but, but he wasn't offered like isolation somewhere else on another property. You know, that is, again, something that is in the health department's kind of realm, and, and they, they, they make all those decisions, and I just wasn't privy to that information once he left the airport. Okay, so you were fortunate you were able to identify someone getting off a plane. Uh, I know that Representative Ed Case has written a letter to the feds, you know, asking about some kind of testing policy or protocol that we could institute where you would get people tested before they get on the airplane. Right, and... What I remind people sometimes, and, and just I remind myself, is that this virus was discovered late December of last year, but really only became internationally known um, in, in early January, so February, March, April, May, so really only four months ago. So the amount of information we have about this virus in just four months is amazing, and that they already have testing for it is amazing. The, the, the key will be is that, as people have probably heard in the media and other places, there's tons of different types of tests. There, last I looked, probably over 50 different types of tests, all with varying reliability. And so I think one of the challenges now is to sort out which test is the most reliable, and, then I'll, and you want to get it for a good price as well. Um, but once that's sorted out, and that really is happening quite quickly, there is the possibility of testing a lot more people in a lot shorter time than we had, let's say, just a month ago. And what I mean by that is there's tests where there's a oral swab or a shallow nasal swab instead of the deep nasal swab, a finger prick blood test um, for antibodies. And so these various different types of tests, um, as you alluded to, could be put together potentially as some type of protocol, and people would get something like a certificate um, to travel, and not just to Hawaii, maybe anywhere. Um, and I think anybody who's tried to bring a dog into the state of Hawaii knows about these types of kind of protocols. There have been stories in the news about the Roosevelt, the USS Roosevelt, and there's a the latest story out of out of Guam is that two of the sailors that had uh, you know were in isolation have retested positive for COVID. So that's a little disconcerting. This is a unusual. And, and cruel virus, and there's no doubt about that. You know, normally when someone is unfortunate enough to get infected with a type of virus, they form antibodies that gives them lifelong immunity. So generally if you get the mumps or, or, or measles or the chicken pox, generally you don't get it again. But for some reason we're finding that people can get reinfected with this virus. and. I don't know if people understand if it's that people don't make antibodies to it or you don't make enough antibodies to it, but there is this issue with reinfection. And again, we've only known about this thing for four months, but it, that does seem to be an issue. The reliability of the test is critical. You know, you, you shared with me that you were just kind of experimenting with some friends who tested positive and you were just kind of checking out some of these different tests to see how reliable they were. Right, and I've, I, I have been given... I think five different test kits. I've never used them to make a decision about a patient. I've never used them clinically. But I have a doctor friend who traveled to Colorado and in a vacation in February, and he was infected with COVID in March. I think in March he was positive. And all the people with him that were all from Hawaii uh, ended up getting infected with COVID, and they've all recovered, which is great. But this group of people has Number one, they've donated their serum, plasma, for their antibodies to protect people who get infected, which is outstanding. But they've also agreed, not only with me, but with some other people, to submit their fingers or their their blood for blood draws or testing to test these various kits to just so we can learn about them. Because I know these were all people who were swab positive for COVID. There's no doubt they had COVID. So uh, a couple different kits I, I tried on one of the one of my friend who's a physician, and two of the kits showed he was positive. There was IgM antibody and IgG antibody, which 
you would expect for somebody who's been infected within the last month. But one kit was totally negative. Uh, it said he had no antibodies for COVID, which quite clearly the other two tests showed he did. And he went on to get some other uh, more sophisticated tests with blood draws that showed he had COVID antibodies. So that just showed me personally that as a clinician, I have to be really careful on signing on to any of these tests for any purpose where a critical decision has to be made. Right, and we don't know in the case of the sailors on the USS Roosevelt if maybe the test that they got you know, was a false positive the second time around. It's a head scratcher. It is. The other thing that has come up that other physicians have shared with me is there's also uh, this concern about false negative where you hear a story of someone swabs positive, then they swab negative, then they swab positive again. And some of the other physicians I've worked with who've taken care of COVID patients feel that sometimes the nasal pharyngeal swab, that's the one that goes in the nose very deep back in the throat that kind of makes you gag, maybe not be put in far enough or not done properly, which could give you a false negative result. And that's the actual swabbing. So I know there's people like, oh, they were positive, then they were negative. But he feels sometimes the swab isn't done correctly in, in all cases. So definitely a learning curve and, you know, definitely everybody wants to get a test that works well and is reliable. And, and, and we'll be there. We'll get it that, there. But I just, I don't know when. We just got a bunch of the, the antibody tests in, I think, in the last couple of weeks, I think. Clinical Labs here in, in Hawaii has, has an antibody test. It's for the IgG antibody. So when you get infected with any virus, the body forms an IgM antibody after about five days or so. So that's the first one that would become positive. Then after 12 to 14 days or, or thereabouts, you form the IgG antibody. And that IgG antibody then hopefully lasts forever and will protect you in theory against COVID in the future. I mean, that's the hope. And I believe the test that's being offered by the clinical labs now is the IgG test, which isn't really to show you if you have currently an acute infection. It's more to show you if you've had an infection in the past and therefore have um, COVID antibodies. So I'm not sure if that's being used right now to make clinical decisions, but more maybe someone comes in and said, hey, I was sick two months ago. I never got any swabs or testing. Could you see uh, if it was COVID? Right. And that antibody test is, is how that would sort that question out. So it's out. the after fact. After, after the, the fact. fact, absolutely. Can we talk about the testing at the airport, the thermal scanners that uh, the lawmakers have set money aside for? People are looking at what other airports are doing, what other airports have done. But you want to make sure you get something that's, again, reliable, trusted, proven. And I think that's what folks are looking at now. I think going back to what you said about Representative Case, that could be very helpful to potentially have people screened swabbed or blood tested before they come. You know, I can't speak for the government. I can't speak for, you know, the health department, any of that. But I will say that it seems like and it's, it, everything's on the table, and it's just a matter of sorting through what is really going to be reliable and helpful and sorting, because right now there's a lot of claims from all these different companies, but I think people have to do their due diligence and make sure that we're getting a product that's going to be reliable, I guess, is the bottom line. And we want to make sure we're not getting bad information, um, because then you make bad decisions. That was Dr. Jim Ireland, medical director for the paramedics and firefighters at the state's airports across the state. Uh, time now to look across the globe as experts in China say that cases of COVID-19 are noticeably different than those observed at the beginning of the outbreak. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the coronavirus global update on Wednesday the 20th of May. I'm Nick Miles. New COVID-19 cases in China show different symptoms and longer incubation. An infected mink could have passed the virus to a worker at a Dutch fur farm and adopt a grandparent, how people in Bolivia are helping each other's elderly relatives. Experts in China say new cases of COVID-19 there are noticeably different from those seen at the start of the outbreak. The National Health Commission has been comparing patients who've recently tested positive in the northeast with those seen in the central Wuhan region a few months ago. Kerry Allen's been looking at the findings. 
there are two very different things happening in Wuhan and in the northeast, the areas Heilongjiang and Jilin. So they're saying that patients now have a longer incubation period, so they're experiencing the virus for longer. And also they've got very different clinical symptoms. So they don't have a fever, but they're suffering from either fatigue or a sore throat. And some people have no symptoms whatsoever. So this is starting to raise some questions now about whether this virus could be changing. Brazil's health ministry has said patients should be given a controversial anti-malaria drug at the first sign of COVID-19 symptoms, even though there's no evidence it works. Patients will have to sign a waiver recognising the possible side effects of hydroxychloroquine, which doctors warned could cause potentially fatal heart problems. On Tuesday, more than 1,100 people died in Brazil with coronavirus. The Dutch government says it's plausible that an infected mink at a fur farm passed coronavirus to an employee. Two Dutch mink farms were cordoned off last month when some animals were found to have the virus. The farming minister, Carla Schouten, told Dutch public broadcaster NOS checks were being carried out. We will now screen all mink farms in the Netherlands. We'll check whether antibodies are present to see whether the virus has been there or is still present. We need to make sure the screening is carried out properly to get a full picture because we want to investigate this in full. The aerospace giant Rolls-Royce is to cut at least 9,000 jobs worldwide. That's more than one in six of its workforce. The company, which makes plane engines, warned that it would take several years for the airline industry to recover from the pandemic. Here's our business correspondent, Dominic O'Connell. These job losses, while grim, have been expected for some time. Airbus and Boeing have both slashed the numbers of planes they plan to build in the next few years. The company currently employs about 52,000 people worldwide. Although the details of where the cuts will fall have not been finalised, it's likely that about two-thirds will be in the UK. The Spanish Parliament's expected to agree a two-week extension to the country's state of emergency. There's been mounting political and public opposition to lockdown measures, with protests in several cities. But the government wants to keep these special powers to control the easing of restrictions. Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez told MPs it was the only way to fight the virus effectively. The Spanish people have reversed the spread of the virus. The Spanish people united. And no one, I repeat, no one, has the right to throw away what we have all achieved during these long weeks of lockdown. Anyone not wearing a face mask in Kuwait could now be jailed for up to three months or fined more than $16,000. The country has seen a gradual rise in cases in recent days. Another Gulf state, Qatar, warned last week that anyone defying an order to wear a mask risked being fined more than $50,000. An award-winning robotics team in Afghanistan made up of teenage girls is making ventilators from car parts. The group, who made headlines in 2017 when they won a special award in the US, are racing against time to deliver the machines by the end of May at a fraction of the market price. Afghanistan has just 400 ventilators for its nearly 39 million people. And a Bolivian man who lives too far away from his parents to support them during the lockdown has started a campaign for people to help each other's elderly relatives. Sergio Royella, who's in La Paz, sent out a post on Facebook and someone who lived nearby offered to help them. The favour was returned and he began by providing shopping and socially distant conversation for a man called Oscar after someone posted a picture of him saying he needed help. But Sergio says the idea soon grew. Many people in the neighborhood started to, to see what I was doing. They, they were giving me some pieces of bread or something to give him. So it, it kind of became like a social uh, situation. And the nice thing is that he was not the only one. We found like 173 old people around La Paz that uh, were living in this situation. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sutter Health Kahi Mohala, offering behavioral health services, recognizing Mental Health Month this month as a means of raising awareness of the importance of mental health. Sutter Health Kahi Mohala.
I'm Bert Lam. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn how a grassroots effort got started in Hawaii to help kids get connected to the internet. We'll learn how a project called Wi-Fi on Wheels aims to use inactive school buses to bring internet access to families without broadband. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanities Restore, a home improvement store and donation center, announcing its reopening, hours 9.30 to 4.30, Monday to Saturday, honoluluhabitat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. Recently, while exploring Google Maps, we stumbled upon the city of Hawaiian Gardens. You may not have heard of it before. It's not located in our 808 state. This got us curious, and we started digging to learn more about this municipality. According to historian Tom Jacobs, it was during the 1920s that a savvy farmer started a small concession stand selling drinks and sandwiches to passing travelers. It was simply constructed a bamboo frame covered with palm fronds. He named this establishment Hawaiian Gardens, and customers enjoyed the added luxury of two palm-thatched outhouses in the back. Prohibition probably contributed to the steady clientele. Rumor had it that upon request, a simple soda could be hardened up with some local moonshine. The quaint shack disappeared after the repeal of Prohibition, but the name stuck. Over the decades, the residential population had grown to the point that community leaders realized that they were no longer just a rural town. They incorporated and became the City of Hawaiian Gardens on April 9, 1964. For today's quiz, can you tell us which state it's located in? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. As we travel around, we continue our thread of airports on our segment that we call The Long View. Our contributing analyst, Neil Milner, joins us this morning. Happy Wednesday. Thank you. Same to you. <laughs> so, airports. I know you've seen a few in, in recent months. <laughs> what got you thinking about this? Well, like what got me thinking about it was a piece in uh, City Lab yesterday where uh, it talks not just about the airports in the short term and changes that have to be made, but it puts it in a kind of interesting historical and, and uh, architectural context that, frankly, I hadn't done much thinking about, but is really important to understand. So there are, really, there are really a few things going on here that it's important to understand about airports and our airport in particular in a pandemic. The first one is what kind of changes you have to make in order to incorporate uh, a reasonably large number of people flying again that's kind of short term but the second thing is long term which is how do you change airports uh, considering the fact that they don't have a history of being able to change very fast at the same time they've often become obsolete very quickly and uh, they're very expensive so and, and finally what what you have to think about then is okay so you got to make these short term changes you got these other kinds of long term sort of barriers about the architecture and then the fourth thing is really okay what's going on to make airports in the future like ours uh, more ability to what architects call future proofing that is making them more flexible so that's really what it's you know that's really what it's all about here well we're fortunate because uh, our Honolulu airport at least is open air 
Uh, and so that's kind of a, a, a nice you know, design element uh, and, and is good because you're not in, you know, confined spaces. But, you know, talk about the crowds, right? How do we oh, manage yeah. those crowds? And I know our airport's in the middle of a modernization project, but, yeah, you kind of wonder, well, what are they thinking? <laughs> well, yeah, okay, let's take the crowd thing first. You know, when, when uh, the last big adjustment that the airport suddenly had to make was 9-11, and they worked pretty fast and made some pretty remarkable ones, not the least of which was the security line, which goes on and on, people standing very close to one another as they wait to be checked by the, you know, by the dog. Uh, how are you going to do that with uh, requiring social distancing? What are you going to do about a kind of health barrier where you put people to be screened? All of those things become um, issues that are much more important now because, if you need space, you can't just simply create it out of nothing. And what airports have had problems in the past with is that they've been constructed in ways that make them, make them pretty inflexible to change. So you have, on the one hand, airports that do these sort of cool designs that they're designed by particular architects, but then the airline goes, uh, goes boom. Or you have, which is pretty typical, you have airports constructed out of concrete barriers as opposed to, say, steel. And so you put the waiting area, in effect, between two barriers. Well, you can't cut through concrete and, and very easily, and you can't remodel it very easily. So at the same time, you've got to make some pretty rapid changes. We're really pretty limited to what it is that you can, that you can do quickly because of the ways that lots of airports have, have been designed. And then the design after a while turns out not to last anyway because the planes change and so on. But you've got to think about the whole process here. You know, you, so you think about space, and then you think about space that you would need in a waiting area at the gates. And then that radiates out to things like um, restaurants, space, and all of those other things. So the airport becomes a really crucial but a pretty complicated thing to, to do. And I really got interested in, in, in this future-proofing kind of thing. What is it that you can do to prepare for these things more in the future? Well, you know, it's funny because we were just talking to an architect, uh, an AIA architect, uh, Dean Takamoto, and he sits on a national committee of, I don't know, 60 or 90 architects across the country, and they're looking at, you know, problem-solving and at, in different areas, you know, workspace, schools, yep. and, you know, airports, I'm sure, are on that list, too. So, yeah, I mean, all I could think of initially about, you know, post-COVID-19 is, oh, my goodness, the lines, how much longer am I going to, how much, how much uh, more time do I have to build into my traveling to stand in line? Yeah, well, that's right. And, and also, just where you put people standing in line, if they have to be six feet apart from one another in a line as compared to, what, a sixteenth of an inch that we, you know, that we now as we crowd in. And, and, and right now the line sometimes, I mean, I've waited in those TSA lines so far back that it was, it was uh, past any shelter, and so we, st we stood there in the rain. Yeah, those are, those are really obvious, and they have to be solved fairly quickly. The, but what becomes a, an important question for our airport is what's happening to prepare this airport for uh, a more f for a more flexible future? Because two things: one, first of all, air airports are becoming more and more problematical in some ways. They're very expensive. A lot of them are running up against barriers of, of, of uh, expansion and so on. But specifically, here we have the Department of Transportation Airports Division being in charge of. Uh, renovations of this airport that seems to have gone on forever. Um, and most people are aware of the problem. The airport's not rated very well when you, when you do these tourist tests. Um, but they, and, and, so, and so you have that. You also have a structure here, an administrative, and it's really a political structure because it's, legis it's legislatively created, that makes it very hard for the Department of Transportation uh, to be able to make changes in a, in a relatively rapid or flexible way. They wanted an airport authority that would give them more flexible. The legislature's always refused to do it. So here's what, you, here's what I want to ask uh, the people who are now in charge of the renovations for, 
for DKI, for the airport here? And I don't know the answer because it, it requires a kind of expertise, but I think these questions now have to be asked a lot more, and one of which is the obvious one. What are you doing for right now? How are you going to make these changes from an airport that, even though it's open air, that's about that's, that takes care of some of it, but everything else that you and I just talked about, Catherine, is is up for grabs, and it has to be worked out in a relatively short period of time. But the second one, in a, in a structure of remodeling airports where we're not very flexible and where the political system in this state, the way we make decisions, is kind of cumbersome and slow, what is this airport doing to consider future-proofing? One of the things that architects talk about, for example, is you don't build out of concrete you build more out of steel because if you have to make re- uh, renovations, you make it by it's easier to cut through steel than it is to cut through, um, you know, to, to cut through anything else like concrete. So with the airlines going through this really hard time, air air travel is problematical right now for all kinds of reasons uh, because uh, one of which is is a climate change reason. But the important thing is that we have to ask these questions about how future-proof is DKI? How easy is it going to be in the future, given these remodeling? How much did they take into consideration the flexibility and design that you need to um, that you need to be able to adjust to unforeseen circumstances uh, in a relatively economical manner because no one because money is going to be more of a problem about airports over the years well i think they're at a stage right now with the rental car facility uh, what they call the conrack yeah. uh, building and i did check with the dot uh, spokesman tim sakahar not too long ago and he said oh yeah well they've you know kind of turned the stone uh, on some of the construction there but they can't really have a big hoopla because of you know, we're in the shelter-in-place, stay-at-home kind of mode. So it's curious. But, yeah, uh, I can't wait to actually get back to the airport to kind of see, you know, what's been done, what works. Well, that's true, although I would like to get back to the airport for only one reason, to get on a plane and to be able to go safely where I've been waiting to visit now for what seems like a longer and longer time. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that a facility. This has been a common um a common trend in airports is to centralize uh, car rental things. Chicago did it. San Francisco did it. Um, Portland is more or less did it. You wonder now, considering the issue of social distancing and and uh, spreading out, that if the old system, you know, where you had to drive to, you had to figure out how to get to one car rental agency and there wasn't another nearby, does that become more attractive now? So it, it, it raises all, these, all of these interesting, weird, but essential questions about if you were building in order to get people to congregate more efficiently, which is what we've, you know, what we've tried to do in the past, uh, anticipating that crowds are going to get bigger, and so you figure out how to manage them. Um, that's not the case anymore. Yeah, I know, a whole new world. Yeah. Thanks so much, sure. and we'll see you at the airport sometime. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't know when, but okay. uh, I hope so. We can both fly together. Yes, okay. and uh, safe travels. <laughs> well, we've been talking with Neil Milner, retired professor of political science and our contributing editor today, taking the long view of the airports post-COVID-19. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bank of Hawaii, committed to the community's safety and dedicated to customers' financial preparedness, offering the ability to bank from home with mobile and online services 24-7. B-O-H dot com. After the housing bus, one woman fought for years to keep her family home. It's not in my nature to give up. She was taking on a small group of men who made a killing profiting off the death of the American dream. It's been the greatest thing I've ever done in my professional life, honestly. On the next reveal, the homewreckers. This evening at 7, following Bike Marked Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. Our reality check today focuses on the military's underground fuel tank farm at Red Hill. Honolulu Civil Beats politics and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about it. Good morning. 
Good morning, Catherine. So we've got a story that we're featuring today from Christina Jedra. Mm-hmm. You know, she's taken a, a, a different approach than I think I've seen in other reports. We, we all know about the problem at Red Hill. There's those um, jet fuel tanks the Navy has, and they sit above, I believe, just 100 feet above uh, a giant aquifer that, that really provides drinking water for oh, something like 400,000 residents uh, on Oahu. And the concern, of course, is that it has in the past leaked a lot <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, whether that might somehow poison the aquifer and thus our drinking water and get people sick. So what, what Christina did is she actually said, well, does this problem exist elsewhere? The Navy has other bases. They must have other, you know, fuel storage tanks. Sure enough, uh, she focused in particular in California in the San Diego area, which has a large Navy presence, and she found out there was a similar story. Old tanks, ones dating back, you know, to World War II and before, uh, leaking problems uh, over the years. But in this case, rather than just, you know, saying, yeah, we're fine, we don't need to really fix anything, the Navy took great steps to lobby Congress, got a lot of money, and replaced those tanks. And, and the point of that uh, research for Christina is to say this is a model for others to follow when it comes to dealing with uh, fuel tanks that are in danger possibly of harming the civilian uh, population. Right, but the Navy's position over here is that uh, <laughs> they're fine. They just need repairs, and we need this facility. Yeah, it's it's a it's a, a tough thing to to believe. The, the the complaints, the concerns have come from environmental groups like the Sierra Club, a lot of uh, community members in the Red Hill area. Uh, I mean, this aquifer, they, the water extends all the way up to Waikai in terms of drinking water. The Board of Water Supply has taken a prominent role, saying this is a concern. But no, what the Navy tells us is we're going to be fine. We can actually wait until probably 2045 to, to remove those tanks. And this is an interesting point from Christina's research, what I didn't quite realize. She says the Navy's banking on what she describes as a scientific breakthrough not yet invented, uh, specifically what's described as double wall equivalency. Well, the Navy didn't have any specifics to provide about that. Uh, and, uh, you know, she talked to the Sierra Club and said, well, what's the difference? If you could do this in California, why on earth can't you do this here uh, in, um, in on Oahu? Right, and I think the military has said that uh, this is a gravity-fed uh, facility, you know, which it is, which uh, yeah. basically fuels our entire Pacific fleet, Indo-Pacific fleet. Right, I mean, Navy uh, Red Hill is an elevated every area. Everybody knows where it is up in Montalua, and uh, we can see what's happening. But you know, Christina took her research further, and, and she said not only was this a model, what happened in San Diego, Point Loma specifically, uh, in Washington State, there in Puget Sound, another naval base with a very similar problem: uh, fuel tanks dating back to World War II and before, prob problems with leakage, and here the Navy once again moved fairly expeditiously to try and remove those tanks as well. So here is yet another example right on the West Coast um, where the Navy has taken a different approach when it comes to leaking fuel tanks. Right. And this is an issue that uh, I know the, the community has weighed in on uh, since we had the big a fuel leak. Oh gosh, how many years ago was it? Well, I want to say that was 2014, if I yeah. if I recall. It is in Christina's story, which is uh, the lead story up on our website. Uh, um, but um, there has been, by the way, you know, nothing leaked since that time that that's been, that I know about. But a contractor took a risk assessment and said, look, there's actually a great risk that this could happen again. You could have a 20% chance specifically of a leak of maybe 30,000 uh, gallons or so. This could be a real serious problem. I should say, by the way, that um, the EPA and the State Department of Health are currently reviewing the Navy's plans for Red Hill. So we'll see whether there will be any developments uh, coming from them regarding uh, the Navy's uh, tanks there. Right. No uh, quick fix, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, uh, lots of conversations that still need to be had about this issue. Thanks yeah, so just my quickly. Oh, I'll just say thank you, and I'll look forward to talking tomorrow. I was going to add one other thing, but time is up, and yes. I honor live radio. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank, thank you, Catherine. Thanks so much, Chad. <laughs> that was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read Christina Jedra's story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. Monthly online info sessions are available for the Distance EMBA and Master of HR. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Judith Simon Prager, co-author of The Worst is Over. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how words can harm and words can heal. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Air Cargo, committed to connecting the Hawaiian Islands, continuing to provide inter-island shipping and cargo services during these unsettled times. Learn more at alohaaircargo.com. Earlier in the show, we told you about a city on the mainland called Hawaiian Gardens. During the 1920s, uh, it sat on a rural, uh, woody marshland that was sparsely populated. People could hunt or water their horses and cattle. It was in this wild space that an uh, intrepid businessman decided to set up shop. Historians don't remember his name, but they do know he built a small concession stand out of bamboo and palm fronds. He called his establishment Hawaiian Gardens. It was a favorite rest stop for travelers during this time of prohibition, in large part because a simple soda could be hardened up with locally brewed moonshine. Repeat customers and word of mouth soon turned the little stand into a landmark. The business disappeared following the repeal of prohibition, but the name stuck, and the surrounding town was called Hawaiian Gardens. In 1964, it became the 75th city in California, incorporated into the surrounding Los Angeles Long Beach metro area. And our winner today, Sharon O'Connell in Hilo, uh, she shares that 30 years ago she was working for Pinkerton and investigated a case in Hawaiian Gardens. And a fun fact, uh, at least two other people who knew the answer also called in from Hilo. Very Akamai. That is our uh, quiz today. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, this week we're highlighting the parallels of isolation at Kalopapa and our current isolation. We explored a book on Kalopapa name places yesterday. Today we share a tale about a tree, the Chalmunga tree. You can find one growing at the UH Manoa campus next to Bachman Hall. We were there earlier this year with a master gardeners group that set up an exhibit to draw attention to its storied past. We were not far from a flagpole on a very blustery day in February. Gardeners Capone Ryan and Julian Lipshire recalled uh, they first discovered the tree as part of a tour on notable specimens on the Manoa campus. That was an introduction to a tree which was used as a treatment for leprosy, thanks to UH chemist Alice Ball. Master Gardener Julian Lipshire picks up the story. For probably six years, I'd been volunteering over at the National Park at Kalaupapa, working with their cultural resource management group uh, on restoration of old grave sites. So I had, you know, an opportunity to think about uh, Master Gardener group, Shalmugra tree. Was there a Shalmugra tree at the settlement? And called up uh, their natural resource management chief and asked about that and they thought well one of the patients thought there might have could have been and uh, we don't know where and it was it's unclear if there is one now you know it's it's part of Kalau Papa's history St. Damien Father Damien would take baths as part of I guess it was the Goto method using the oil from the Shalmugra tree to relieve some of the nerve damage and the pain that was caused by the disease. And of course, Alice Ball, you know, uh, was able to synthesize the oil into a water-based injectable. Um, so a lot of threads came together um, to knit the National Park Service, CTAR, uh, College of Tropical Agriculture, Human Resources, the Master Gardener, our Master Gardener group, and Claude Papa together you know, for a story. And this is our story. 
But your whole intent was to be able to make sure that this tree was included in Kalapapa's history. It is part of their history, and it would it, it, it it's part of the uh, the history of uh, the disease. It's part of uh, Damien's legacy and uh, St. Marianne Cope's legacy. It was part of the legacy of the U.S. Public Health Service that built a hospital there at great expense in the early 1900s that failed miserably because they were doing an experiment that further separated people from their community at uh, Kalaupapa. So this, it seemed like a natural confluence of, of effort uh, to bring the Shalmuga tree back to Kalaupapa and to you know, further our knowledge, propagation of trees from the Master Gardener program. And uh, Kapona, you have a personal story, a connection with Kalapapa. Well, actually I do, but I didn't know that. I mean, at first it started where where we took that tour with the Arbor, for the Campus Arboretum. We came across the Chamuga tree and we went, oh my gosh, this is a Chamuga tree. And we, and we went through all that process as master gardeners. So if you consider a parallel universe is I'm working towards the Chamuga tree side of the story but somewhere in the mainland my cousins are working on ancestry and trying to track that down and they find out that we have um, I have a great-grandmother who's buried in Kalapapa but as they're coming to that conclusion and I'm coming to the conclusion that I'm going to go to Kalapapa in October they're going to come out in August they said did you know about this and I said no so we went ahead of time to be able to track that down and suddenly it's like I have two sides to the story. I have this this uh, science, love for nature, botany side, and then I have a personal story with uh, with uh, my uh, great grandmother who happens to be buried there. And to be able to get from the health department and from the national park services information on her and pictures of her, and I am just moved because. For our circumstances, the family had been broken up when when um, great grandma had been taken away, and and the kids had been fostered out, and so there was always talk about what is this all about? Why did grandma let you go? Why did why did mom let you go? And that kind of stuff. But it wasn't until we started getting more and more information about the situation on Kalapapa that we actually figured out that and there was healing for the family is it was because the Hansen's disease had separated us and in Hawaiian Hana, I mean you know kind of mysterious I cannot talk about it so there was a silent side to grandma and what happened to great grandma and uh, but this whole thing with the chamuga growing and with my great grandmother just came together and so it was an awesome even deeper and special time. I went to a, a meeting with Kalapapa Ohana. I happened to meet my cousins there who are part of the Nihipali family and they expressed just to show you how Hawaiians are all tied up somehow so these are my cousins and he expressed is that in his ancestry line in Kalawao and in that where, uh, area his family were ones that had been displaced when when the Hansen thing had come so there were originally settlers there Hawaiian settlers there who had to move or could stay or there were different things but they were some of the original people that received the the lepers in the beginning and fed them and took care of them and considered them part of family so i have it from different sides i have from my mother's side is my great-grandmother who's buried there and i have from my more more or less from my dad's side so um, my calabash side from my dad's side the people that may have received her was your family able to do the research through the like the state archives and the health department records that kind of thing health, health department and also the the Kalapapa Ohana people as well. And then also, you know, this Ancestry.com thing is just right. tracking everywhere. And then we went through the legal papers because, you know, now they have the things where in land court, the information is now being translated out of Hawaiian into English. And that was helpful too, to be able to track the names on the law, on the law and, and the land grants, etc. So- You visited her gravesite. And I visited her gravesite. So actually was able to go there Oli and, and, and put lay on there and was um, there's such a uh, you know, such a peace when you come there so you know people tell you different things about Kalapapa and the sadness but um, I had gone to my great grandmother's grave size I'm sad sad I mean I sad I'm doing my due respect and my honors it's facing towards the ocean and Richard tells me turn around and I said why and he says turn around just turn around and I turn around and there's a 
there's a big recreational spot with a, a large uh, playing field and mountains on top and everything else. And he shared with me is they had a life. They had a, a life that was filled with joy and filled with all kinds of other stuff. They had horse races on one part, potlucks here. And so I could see for myself that this was gravesite to one side to the ocean side and to the mountain side, there was a playground where there was happiness and there was joy. And yes, there was separation and hardship and loneliness and all that breaking up of family. But you could also see that there was beauty and grace and joy at that one spot. So I don't know how it came together for me. And we were reminded that in the early 1900s, there was a population of 1,100 or 1,200 people. So there's a community and as you know, Kapuna was saying there was bakeries where food was going, there were marriages, there were children who were born there. To this day, there's a volleyball game on Wednesday evenings right across from where the bar used to be. So yes, it was the separating sickness, but also it was a time where people made the best of a difficult, very difficult situation and brought a degree of fulfillment, happiness, joy, pleasure into their lives, which shouldn't be forgotten which shouldn't be forgotten. That was Julian Lipshire and Capone Ryan, part of a master gardener's group, working to keep a part of Kalapapa history intact by sharing the story of the Shalmuga tree. The Park Service has propagated seeds from the Monoa tree with plans to replant them at Kalapapa in a nod to the settlement's history. And after some TLC by the master gardeners, we were told that the Shalmuga tree on Monoa campus bloomed last spring, something they say uh, that they had not seen happen in quite some time. Asian Pacific American Heritage Month in the U.S. Today, Google Doodle celebrates the 61st birthday of Native Hawaiian uh, ukulele player, singer-songwriter, and activist Israel Kamaka Viviole. Brother Iz, uh, we, we love you and we honor your memory, and we close out this hour with an uplifting thought that even in these tough times, it is a wonderful world that we live in. do have to go, but tomorrow we learn about UH chemist Alice Ball and how her work with the Chalmuga tree is being acknowledged with a new film and a new book soon to come. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Oh,